There is nothing wrong with your internet. Do not attempt to adjust your settings. We are controlling the podcast. We control the squealing and the screams. We can make your heart flutter, your eyes blur from tears, or sharpen your mind to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit back. We are in control of what you hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your settings. You are about to experience the awe and mystery known as the female mind. You are now entering the Fangirl Zone. We will continue exploring, discovering new worlds, new civilizations. Welcome to the Captain's Chair, a podcast on all shows in the Star Trek universe on the Fangirl Zone. I'm Chief Engineer Steve, and joining me on this mission into the unknown is... I'm Redshirt Dave, and tonight we'll be discussing Episode 5 of Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. Well, what'd you think about this episode, Dave? <sighs> Let's see, heavy sigh. I, I know, I think it's the next one. I've got a rating for it. I, maybe I should share it with you offline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can do make it a homage to our, our listener, to Fred. But this one, uh, even though we're not rating it, if we did rate it, I would give it three out of five vanishing Kovach, uh, Kovach jerks. <laughs> oh, wow, the jerk. Yeah, he uh, did lay down a smackdown on uh, <laughs> Culver there. Yeah, what, they lose their humanity in the future or something? Yeah. <laughs> Culver's trying to help everyone win. He's like basically saying, wah, wah, wah. Yeah, get over yourself. <laughs> I got eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. It was it was okay. You know, three out of five. There's three plots, ABC plots. The uh, I, I, Which plot did I find the most interesting? I found, actually, the uh, Culver subplot, which I call the C plot, I found the less, <laughs> least interesting, even though it was the most <laughs> had the most humanity and like, yep, don't care. <laughs> and then there's the B plot of running the model with uh, another jerk. They managed to find yes. there's two jerks in the yes, future. Absolutely. Good grief. And the A plot, I, I think I like the A plot because I like the way Michael and Booker interact. And the, uh, well, the, all the prisoners were great, but uh, Felix was great. Yes. That prisoner. So, yeah, three out of five vanishing Kovic jerks. <laughs> Well, I enjoyed it as well. I am glad to see that one of our theories that this actually isn't a naturally occurring uh, anomaly yes. seems to have panned out. So, In fact, I wrote a note somewhere that it's possible. Someone said it's space-time, and uh, I don't think I heard that the first time. Of course, space and time are, this, are the same thing. But time, uh, I think we mentioned it all on one point that it maybe it comes from the future or the or yeah. wherever. Right. I know a lot of fans were thinking, oh, it's coming from the Kelvin universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. trying, to, trying to get them back together again. Right. <laughs> hey, I'm a lot younger in that universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More than likely, both of us are. Yeah. Well, let's get into episode five, Dave. The example, Burnham and Book race to evacuate a group of stranded colonists in Anomaly's path. As one of the Federation's brightest scientists comes aboard the USS Discovery to do high-stakes research with Saru and Stamets. And Stig, or Tig. Tig! Yes, Tig! Tig showed up. Didn't look as thin as she did last time. No, but first sighting of uh, Tig this season, so. Tig sighting. Mark yep. it down. That's what I do best. 
USS Janeway comes into visual reign of the dark matter anomaly when they detect massive ionic fluctuations and request a confirmation from the other two ships in their task group. Do you ever wonder why they would name a ship Janeway that many centuries in the future? Yes. Surely, surely there must have been someone else between here and there. That did great things? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> is she so great that her memory has survived all those centuries? Yeah, it's kind of surprising that we haven't heard a name that we didn't know and would find out that, yeah, they were the heroes of the Time Wars. Yeah, yeah. We haven't gotten any of that hardly yet. Well, I guess we do get a little bit of it, the mention of it here in this episode. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Still the Janeway. Okay. You can yeah. And speaking of the NSS Paul, The Paul Firms the Janeway's readings and also detects a spike in X-ray radiation just as the DMA suddenly disappears right in front of them. Yep. Somebody hit the off switch. Yep. Stamets observing the live data feed from Discovery is perplexed by this, as as is Commander Reno, who says it was impossible. Why? Why she disappears? She comes and goes too. Yes, <laughs> That's not impossible. Where'd you, where'd you come from? Four point two seconds later, it reappears on sensors, having moved one thousand light years. That's not good. Yeah, maybe they have trouble with their aim. Yes. Stamets reports this occurrence to Captain Burnham, who asks if it was the same anomaly. <laughs> Stamets confirms the scans are identical and notes that the odds of an identical anomaly were virtually nil. Uh, let's hope so, at least. Yeah. Saru adds that natural phenomena do not disappear and reappear in such a manner. Booker asks if such an event violated the law of physics. <laughs> I know, they also looked at me good, really. Yeah. <laughs> Every law we know of, that is, Stamets yeah. confirms. Burnham asks Zora to cross-reference the sphere data to see if any such other such events have occurred naturally. Zora replies, not a snowball's chance in. <laughs> if this was not a natural phenomenon, Burnham realizes there is only one logical conclusion. Someone created it. And by the end of the episode, I figured out who... Well, I didn't figure out. I figured on who... Must have done it because the prime suspect was in this episode. Yes. <laughs> Did you get the same feeling? Yes. Okay. <laughs> this idea does not sell, sit well with any of them, particularly Booker, who would ask, who would create such a thing? Hmm. You're about to buddy up with him. <laughs> yeah. Burnham reports to Fleet Admiral Vance that the DMA is now near the Radvik asteroid belt, a former emerald chain colony populated by the Achilles. The DMA's trajectory places the colony right at the edge of the impact zone. One degree, one way or the other, could either lead to safety or death. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally bought into the DMA trajectory zone. Yeah. And by the end of the episode, I, I guess I just missed something. It looked like the sun, or a sun, was burning into the... Yes. Yep. <laughs> when I'm, so, because the DMA is a thousand light years away now... No telling what was in in that asteroid belt. Yeah, there could have been a nearby. How, how did they, uh, you can you call me dummy? But uh, how did they get threatened by this nearby sun? I thought it was the whole the DMA thing that was threatening everybody. You can call me dummy. Uh, yeah, you're right. 
Yeah. How, so when did, I, how did the DMA start to glow like a red? Uh, yeah. Sun? Where'd that come from? You can see the plasma coming up, and I'm like, where'd that come from? I thought it was the DMA that was the, the problem. Right. Not, not the sun. There was no sun problem. That's why they went there in the first place. Right. Am, am I stupid? Did I miss something? No. Okay. <laughs> and we never got an explanation of <sighs> why it appeared that way either. It's Dredger. Yeah, Stamets warns that there was no way of telling whether or not it would impact until after the interference from the dark matter in the anomaly interfered with transporters, so the colony had to be evacuated before that point, which Burnham adds will be within four hours. Vance orders the evacuation to proceed immediately. While the Achille were not members of the Federation, the Federation was the only body capable of carrying out a mission of that size. He is preparing to divert all available ships in the region to carry out the evacuation as well as discovery. Burnham volunteers to lead the way herself. Rue asks whether effort is being made to address the panic now that it was known that the DMA was not a natural phenomenon. Vance assures him that President Rilek is meeting with planetary leaders at that moment to discuss that very issue. That's not going to go well. <laughs> Saru is relieved to hear that, as he had received word from the Kaminar High Council, and the fear in their voices was unmistakable. They were desperate for answers. You know, they just get it one out, out of one giant galactic <laughs> uh, disaster, and they're harboring the one, the person that caused it. And right. <laughs> now they're faced with another one. <laughs> they must be looking at each other going, what is? what season is this anyway? Is this season three or four? Yeah. <laughs> and it agrees that they... All were, especially about who was responsible. Federation security had identified a number of possible civilizations capable of creating the DMA, including the Metrons, the Nassine, or the remnants of the Iconians. It was even suggested that the Q Continuum might have been involved, but they have not been heard from in 600 years, and this was unlike anything they'd done before. Now, let's hope it's not Q, but... I could see it. <laughs> Where would they, yeah, I know. Where would they go? Yeah. Doing galaxy hopping. They got bored with our galaxy. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, maybe. Maybe they're in the pleasure, pleasure planet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For now, those responsible are being classified as unknown species 10C. I want to know how many other unknown species they are if they're only down to 10C. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham believes the priority should be figuring out the technology behind the DMA and tracing it back to its creator. Vance has come to that conclusion as well, which is why he has asked Ruan Tarka to advise Starfleet. He was heading a number of scientific endeavors, including the next generation spore drive, working in concert with Aurelio. Come back, Aurelio, and save the day. <laughs> Stamets notes that they still have not solved the navigator problem, meaning any new spore drive was useless without him or Booker. And conveniently, everybody aboard Booker's planet's gone. Yes. Vance is confident Tarka can find the way, and that his expertise will also help to solve the DMA. Boy, has he got wool pulled over Starfleet's eyes. <laughs> Stamets protests that he already has the people he needs, between himself and the task force scientists, but Vance believes someone at the leading edge of both Federation and non-Federation technology was required, and that Stamets would find him a valuable asset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drop the E.T. After, of uh, asset there. Yes. <laughs> Since Saru would be in command while Burnham oversaw the evacuation, 
he would be required to give Tarka anything he needed. Board Booker's ship, Burnham assures Booker that everything was being done to figure out the DMA, but Booker insists that more needed to be done, that they had to find whoever was responsible and stop them. Yeah, before he has more visions of his lost uh, nephew. Yeah. Yeah. Burnham promises him they will, they would, but for now, they had to focus on ex- Evacuating the people from Radvik 5. Booker volunteers to help with that, feeling the need to do something so that no one else had to suffer the loss of their home and people as he did. Burnham agrees and both transport to the bridge. Hey, they're finally using their personal... Yeah, whenever whenever it's convenient. Yeah. That, that's that's a new age. My cell phone doesn't work out here in the country yes. type of thing. Oh, I can't call anybody. Saru reports that three ships have arrived at Radvik and that Tarka was aboard. Burnham orders Lieutenant Christopher to open a shipwide channel, and she explains the mission to evacuate Radvik chain before the DMA rendered transport impossible. And they now only have three and a half hours to do it, so let's go save some lives. <laughs> I was thinking recently when they, they keep showing the bridge and there's a door back there, what do they need doors for? Right! <laughs> I think it was on Picard. They even back in that century, yeah. they're just walking in and out of like portals that look like those sensors at an airport. You know, these people have doors. Well, of course, that's where their ship is from. Right, pre Picard too. Yes, still, <laughs> I know <laughs> it's been upgraded. What are these doors for? I don't know. <laughs> as big as those turbo lifts actually were that we saw last yeah. season that yeah. that'd be the first thing that they'd get rid of. Yeah, we don't need those things anymore. Good grief. No, let's we should more power stored there so we don't have to borrow it from the phaser array and nearly right. blow everybody up. <laughs> Steve, why do we have to think these things through for them? <laughs> anyway, good old Saru reports that there are 1,206 individuals on the surface waiting for evacuation. Burnham orders the channel open to the Achilles Magistrate while also ordering Commander Nielsen to prepare the loading bay on Dock 4 for refugees, where they would be beamed up while Discovery facilitated their move to other ships. Booker points out that the transport array could only bring up 40 people at a time, which would cut it close. Ah, that is another thing they didn't take advantage. See? They got rid of all that piping that would have had a better transport array, but no. More room to store people. Yeah. We do our best work when we're closed, Burnham quotes Booker, referring to the nitrium delivery on joking. At least there were at least no noodle stalls for him to blow up. Christopher reports that the magistrate is on comms and Burnham orders him to open the channel. She's getting a lot, a lot of orders here, you know. Yes. Be nice, lady. The magistrate is grateful to see her as a colony has already sent off all their ships with only a quarter of the population. The remainder are waiting. They've begun to panic. I, when I when I saw that, I'm like, what? Nobody came back? Right. <laughs> drop, they can drop them. Let's see. Light speed. Drop them off someplace outside of James Bird. Come back. Pick up the rest. Right? Yep. Holy smokes. They just wanted to start a new colony. We didn't like those people anyway. 1,206. Who cares? Burnham reassures them that they would get everyone out, <laughs> unlike their predecessors. Saru then reports six life signs remaining stationary beneath the North Dome generator, far from the evac point. The magistrate identifies them as the examples. The North Dome generator is the colony's prison. Uh-oh. When Burnham insists they must be evacuated as well, the magistrate dismisses them as criminals, noting that they were chosen to demonstrate the cause of misbehavior. A tradition they inherited from the Emerald Chain. Wow, that's pretty harsh. Yes. He got a nice talking to later in the episode, too. Oh, yeah. 
Both Booker and Burnham are adamant that they should not be left to die, but the magistrate remains firm, saying they must die. I'm saying that the prison was automated, and anyone who knew the systems had already left. <laughs> that was convenient, too, and reminding them that the law-abiding sinners were waiting for them before they closed the channel. <laughs> we have better people. Yes. <laughs> so does that, remember some of, what was some of their... Uh, I think we'll, we'll probably get to that. But some of the, I mean, one guy actually did something wrong, but one of the one guy stole a, a car or something like right, that. Yeah, I mean, they were not major crimes in any civilization. Yeah, true. How evolved. Burnham instructs Saru to assemble a team to assist the evacuation while she and Booker went to the prison. Commander Reese speaks up to volunteer to lead the evac team. Sue reports, too bad there wasn't a D-plot because we get to see what Reese was doing. Yes. But no. Sue reports that Patton interrupted around the prison, disrupting both communications and transporters within a half-kilometer state radius. Of course it does. Stance returns to his quarters where his husband, Hugh Culber, or I should say Hugh Culber, is surprised to see him. Stamets explains about Tarka being aboard, how he was considered a genius, but is notably bitter about Tarka not reaching out to him about the new spore drive. Somewhat reasonable, but that sounds like Stamets. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little hissy fit there. You know, he has already worked with Tarka's team about propagating the spores and not harming the step, as well as providing numerous samples of the tardigrade-enhanced DNA. I missed the tardigrade. Yeah. But Tarka is always too busy to speak to Stamets, using Aurelio as a go-between. He wonders how he's supposed to work with someone who doesn't show professional courtesy. He calls this, ah, let it roll it off. Let it roll off you, meaning Stamets. As there is a lot more stake at stake now, Culper prepares to go aid with the evacuees, but Stamets stops him short, noting he had already had five therapy sessions that day, and that's how he could take a few minutes before jumping into the next one. Culper notes that people needing his help and that, that knowing someone had created a DMA made it more unsettling. What? They told everybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, got a, they got a jumpy ship in it. Guess what? <laughs> Listen to this news. When Stammer prepares to offer some advice, Colbert insists he's fine and quickly leaves. Moments later, Tarka arrives on the bridge, noting that it was like walking into a antique. Wow. Ooh. I know. Thanks. <laughs> Saru introduces him to Stamets, who sarcastically remarks how nice it is to finally meet him. Tarka mentions that Aurelio had taken spoken about him a lot, and there was much to uh, admire about Stamets' work, which pleases Stamets, of course. Much to improve on, which he didn't like. Tarka is eager to work, and Saru leads them both to the workspace. Tarkin notes that Saru is the first Kelping he's ever met and notes that the strangest of their feet, earning him an incredulous stare from Stamets. Yeah. Something. <laughs> Why? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, we've got people on. Being, you know, advanced. <laughs> yeah. People on the planet that are jerks. Yeah, I don't care. The prisoners die. And then they're the foremost uh, thinker in the galaxy. Hey, he's a jerk too. Yes. With morality. Wow. Welcome to the future. Meanwhile, Burnham reports to discovery that she and Booker are approaching the boundaries of the prison pattern interrupter and asks for an update from Reese. He reports 160 have been beamed out so far and that while it started a little chaotic when they panicked, <laughs> it was under control now. <laughs> he thanks Burnham for letting him lead the evacuation, explaining that his town had been destroyed by a hurricane when he was five years old and they had been rescued by a Starfleet crew, so he understood what the Achille were going through. Good background story. Yeah. As they proceed into the boundary, Booker notes the door is standard emerald chain design, while Burnham is unable to detect any signs of defense systems, something they both found suspicious as they drew out their phasers. Don't take chances. <laughs> That's right. Guns. Send lawyers guns and money. Yes. Or is that, 
that a boomer reference? Yes. <laughs> Book, everyone Google that. Book reminds her about the incident of Unla, reminding her that he had to choose between noodle stands and the fusion reactor and remarks on the simpler times when they were just couriers before Discovery arrived. Yeah. Ahead of them, they spot a large insect pushing out of the dirt, which Burnham identifies as an is a Narissa beetle. Narissa? Yeah, Narissa. Indigenous to the Achilles homeworld and possibly brought along when they settled the colony. When Booker expresses his dislike of the sound of his chitin makes while moving, I didn't like it either. Burnham notes the irony given how he found beauty in the trance worms and suggested that he asked it to go away. So I, I like the banter back and forth yes. between two. It's cute, and they, they do have great chemistry. Yes. I would, I would imagine Book is getting a little tired of her whispering all the time. <laughs> but they, they really do get along great. Uh, but it's that, it's like the, I mean, we had pillow talk at the end of the episode. Yes. And we had these two going back and forth when no one can listen in, too. Booker uh, wordly replies that he's tried, but he can't communicate with it. Brennan is also concerned that it, it has moved to the exact same path four times by that point, something no living thing was precise enough to do. Yeah, that's true. As <laughs> <laughs> they both duck under a boulder, Booker throws a rock at the beetle, which explodes on impact. It is a mobile landmine disguised as a native life form, a weapon rumored to be used by the chain. Those bastards. <laughs> Vernon takes a lot more heading their way back back aboard Discovery. Parker nonchalantly flips a tool around in his hand while Stamets reviews the scans from the precise moment of the DMA disappeared. How it collapsed into the central aperture, which appeared to be a device of some sort, a P. But also disappeared. Stamets also notes the presence of subspace rupture. Tarka impatiently cuts him off, and as he has already seen the data and dubbed it inconclusive, inconclusive, and that the subspace damage could be the result of many different things. I just watched some clips of Amadeus last yeah. night, and of course Mozart was a genius too. Yes, except he was kind of a bumpkin. Yeah. But it's too bad this genius doesn't have the same personality that Mozart does. who's a little nicer, even though he had a weird... That's not what we're talking, is it, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> he gets to talk over Stamets as he... That was annoying. Talk over Stamets as he observed that for something so powerful, it was an exceedingly blunt instrument, like James Bond. Yep. <laughs> when Saruk begins to explain their own questions about the DMA's purpose, Tarka unexpectedly asks where the replicator was located, on uh, being pointed to the console. He asked for a plate of cold mashed potatoes and a single green pea. I would have had warm mashed potatoes just so you can eat it after you the demonstration. Right. But I don't think I'd want to eat it with his finger being in it. That's, no, this, that's, for, him, that's for him. No, yeah, I, I wouldn't have eat it. Yeah, Stamets <laughs> could have used the plate and smashed it into his face. Yeah. <laughs> it could be like, uh, what was that? Or the Pratt movie with the... Uh, Animal House. Yeah, so he gets all the mashed potatoes in his mouth and <laughs> hits a cheek and spits them out across the table. <laughs> Why am I thinking of these things? The potatoes are the DMA, the expedient material moving through space. The P was a device in the center. Can't wait to see that. Yeah. He mentioned Stamets' original theory that it might have been a primordial wormhole, which he believes was not completely wrong. He theorizes that someone somehow tunneled the DMA through space-time. There we go. Though he admits he has no idea why. I think we discussed at one point that it could be a, an experiment gone wrong, too. Right. Not necessarily yes, absolutely. a weapon. Yeah. It could be experimenting with something and oops. Yeah. <laughs> every time, and it's quite possible that every time they try to fix it, they have no idea what's going on. Right. At the other end of this 
wormhole or whatever it is. <laughs> what could go wrong? Let's turn it on again. <laughs> In the meantime, he suggests getting their hands dirty by creating a working model of the DMA controller in a miniature scale and show Stamets the schematics of the device. How convenient they had that. Yeah. <laughs> Saru is concerned about constructing a device that would create a wormhole inside the ship, but Tarka is adamant that the real-world try was necessary to determine the answers to the questions they had. How much power did it need? How much rupture? How much did it rupture subspace? Or <clears throat> he could be casing the joint, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely he is. How, how capable is Discovery? What is their technology? Are they going to stand in my way? He's the perpetrator, of course, being the smartest guy in the galaxy. And a jerk. <laughs> yeah. You could, if they could find these answers, they could find who created the DMA. Or it could be uh, Parker said, well, my, my own model, my own technology sucks. I need just a little bit more, and I think I'll steal it from Discovery and... So not, a, not only do I know their capabilities, I'm going to rob them. Yep. Stamets agrees that it could work, and if they contain both ends in the wormhole in a containment field, Saru finally agrees, intending to leave Nielsen the con so he can supervise. I wanted to see Nielsen at the con. Yeah. Tarka knows they could need a bigger room. Okay, just like Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> Outside the prison, Booker's firing on a beetle mine, some of which are producing flying saw blades and cut through rock. Well, why don't they just run around the rock? Well, I guess they, well, they have enough of them. While Brenham attempts to disable the shared control matrix that powers them. See the technology she was using, Steve? Yep. It, it just comes out of nowhere. Yes. If only they had that on a ship instead of pipes and elevators yeah. doors and stuff. <laughs> she is successful and they proceed towards the prison proper. As they enter the prison, Burnham tells the prisoners to prepare to be evacuated and tells them a gravitational anomaly is heading toward them. One of the Achille prisoners, Luda, bitterly realizes this is why the guards left, leaving them to die. Yeah. Yep. A human prisoner named Felix asks why a Starfleet captain would bother to rescue them, to which Burnham answers that the Federation did not leave prisoners to die. Felix notes that they were all sentenced to life, no matter how small their crime. One was there for stealing food for their family, another for trading in counterfeit latinum, and Luna for counting cards at a tango club. Wow. Life sentence for that? Yeah. That's a large. Yes. Luna adds that Felix was there for one joyride in a sandcopter. <laughs> Ask how that warrants being held for 30 years in counting. Felix continues that the prison was not a place of justice and that the Federation had done nothing. Burnham reminds him that they couldn't do anything because it was Emerald Chain territory, but they did care about the lives of the oppressed. Yeah, Felix, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> she explains that transporters and communications would be lost within the next hour and that they didn't know if the anomaly would hit them or not, but that they would be evacuated to the ship until it was safe. Felix tells them that the prison controls were on the basement level, but they are were biometrically locked to the guards. Luda, Oops. Yeah, Luda suggests <laughs> overloading the force field generator. If we could just pause a second, Steve. Sure. We just recently had another reference to the, uh, oh, what do they call it, the DMA. That the DMA is going to, so, so far in this part of the episode, this, the threat is still from the DMA, not some burning sun. Just wanted to mention that. Okay, yeah, go ahead. We're still... <laughs> yeah, we're still with the DMA as the threat. Yeah. Booker scans the generator whose casing was of a quantarium alloy, 
one of the strongest metals known, but Burnham also knows it was an exceptional heat conductor and that they could overload the system by heating it up with their phasers. That's her second Sherlock moment in the episode. Yes. So Dr. Culper, Culber enters his office to find Kovich waiting on Hollow. Culber, Culber explains he had to cancel their appointment, but Kovich reminds him that there were others helping the refugees and that he, Culber, had requested the meeting. It made me wonder. Of course, he's impatient, but he's not physically there. He's actually back in his yes, office. Back in Starfleet, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, okay, time is valuable to this yep. guy. But before he, you, you can't be impatient by standing there because you're not standing there. Exactly. <laughs> you're in your office. <laughs> and there must be some way of, of appearing before Culber uh, without standing Right. virtually in his yeah. office or they send him a little message like uh ready when you are you know exactly. and we have skype and we do that yes <laughs> colbert tries to explain that this was before he knew about the evacuation but kovich gets to the point he's a busy man and had cleared the time specifically for colbert and they should both forego the therapeutic niceties it's not going to be pretty I roll. Yeah. <laughs> Culber begins by mentioning his duties as ship's counselor and how Kovich had worked with Giorgio, which Co Kovich takes as a request for brutal honesty. <laughs> You're going to get it, Culber. Are you sure? Yeah. Culber explains how the DMA has affected the crew and how he has offered hope to the crew that it would not last forever and they would find a way to stop the DMA. He mentions his recent session with Booker, where he almost admitted to Booker that he, too, was struggling and that he realized he had been lying to the crew. It was a realization made worse by the revelation that the DMA was created by someone with incredible power. Whether he lied or not, Culber admits he was failing. Well, somebody failed telling everybody. They, they could have kept yes, that confidential. They kept that secret. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess Burnham's not going to keep secrets from her crew. Oh, boy. Kovich asked him if he wanted to affirm that Culber was failing just so he could take a break. <laughs> Culber wow. heatedly insists that he, that was not what he said, but Kovich retorts that it was. Culber angrily prepares to leave. Kovich reminds him that he had died and been brought back to life. Little wonder you're a mess, he notes, mentioning that Culber's Starfleet file was stunningly generic about his feelings on that unique situation, so he offers to fill in the blanks. Now, how would Culber know how to fill in the blanks? He sees that Culber yeah. asks himself the same question every morning and every evening. No one else gets a second chance, so why me? This then led Culber to believing that there was a purpose to his survival, which led to a savior complex. Because if there was no purpose behind Culber's existence, the fact that he was alive would be a middle finger to anyone who ever lost someone, <laughs> which was, in fact, everywhere. You know, I think uh, Sigmund Freud had more compassion than this guy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Culber sarcastically asked if he had a recommendation, recommendation <laughs> to go with that sparkling analysis. <laughs> Kovic's recommendation is simple. Whether or not he considered it a miracle, Culber was still only human, which meant he needed to rest too, just as he advised his patients. Was there a clue there that Kovic isn't human? I think there is. Yeah. 
I think he could be a um, <laughs> an LMD. <laughs> <laughs> if he couldn't find fulfillment outside of work, then he would be failing anyone who sat in the chair in front of him. Kovic notes he has a two o'clock appointment and curtly bids Culber goodbye before closing the channel and leaving the doctor in thought. Well, I hope I hope Culber is not spending like ninety dollars an hour for that kind of analysis. Yes, funny <laughs> <Money> back <laughs> jerk. Back in the prison, Burnham and Booker bring down the generator. Luda bluntly tells the others there was no way she was going to sit in the brig and elects to leave on her own. Burnham raises her phaser to stop her. It was set to stun, but it still won't feel good. Yeah, I wanted to see that. Yeah. <laughs> How'd that feel? Yeah, Booker reminds them that the <laughs> ship was the only way for them to get off the colony, but Felix does not see how they can expect trust when they treat him and his fellow prisoners no differently than their jailers and Burnham and tells Burnham <laughs> to lower her weapon. After a moment, she does so. I, I'm constantly thinking, oh, we can have this argument aboard the ship. Yes, absolutely. Ah. Let's get on the ship and then we can discuss this. Really? I think Booker was like hedging them there. We don't have time for this. Yes, he was trying to get them off. Yeah. Felix then asked if they would get their freedom if they were rescued, believing that if they went off on their own, they could be free. And if the anomaly missed the colony... They would find their own way out. Uh-huh. Another reference to the anomaly as the problem. Yes. Burnham reminds him that it was a big if, and Booker tells him about the DMA's power and about how it destroyed his home world and how whoever was behind it didn't care how many it killed. Dark. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> yes. While sympathetic to Booker's loss, it changes nothing so far as Felix is concerned. He demands a guarantee or they go nowhere. Back in the Spore Drive lab, Tarka has created the model controller and activated the containment field. Reno expresses the wish that she could see Silly Tilly's face when she finds out that Discovery got sucked into a wormhole three days after <laughs> she left. Yes, <laughs> yes. dodge that bullet. That he misses Tilly as well. Stamets tells her they're ready for the power transfer. Tarka notes that in addition to the smaller size, the major difference between the model and the real DMA controller was that the real thing had its own internal power source using technology far beyond their capabilities, but that he has the rest of it down completely. So, uh, whoever is at the other end, and they have this amazing technology, even power source, they still don't know how to use like a wild horse. Right. What happens when we turn this thing on? Hey, where'd it go? <laughs> As Rena adds the power, the model looks almost exactly like the DMA. And there is no bright light coming out of that thing anywhere. Nope. Tarka smugly remarks on how good it was to have a theory proven right, remembering that the first time he did so was at <laughs> age five when he atomized a live caracal. Oh, those are the good old days, too. Yeah. <laughs> He felt like he was never understood growing up on Ryza as he was surrounded by idiots feeling like the Galileo before the Inquisition <laughs> and that great intellect could be costly, something he believes he has in common with Stamets. Having heard about the neural lock put on him when the Emerald Chain seized discovery. So we need to put a neural lock on Yeah, I know. Go down to Home Depot and pick one up. Yeah. <laughs> Saru brings their attention back to the experiment, which appears to have stalled. Tarkus sees he will need more power. 
<laughs> we know has already diverted everything without pulling from the transporters, something Saru is adamant will not be allowed. Stamets pleads with Reno to find some other way, noting her love of a challenge. Reno speculates they could pull ionic radiation from the main phaser array to act as a temporary power source, noting that on a scale from 1, nothing to worry about, to 10, insane, she would give it a 6. 6 isn't good. <laughs> no, that's on the wrong side of that scale. Right. Darka insists that great science was never accomplished without caution. <laughs> caution. <laughs> And Stamets adds that every bit of data was needed to solve the puzzle of the DMA, but Saru believes neither of them are concerned enough about the risk. I liked uh, Reno's uh, retort to that. Nothing's ever accomplished with caution. She goes, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll just allow myself to be radiated. <laughs> oh, nuts. Everybody died, including me. Suddenly, Tarka begins yelling in his face, trying to get a response and challenging him to yell back. And boy, does Saru give it back. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> Roared like a lion. Yeah, causing Tarka to rear back slightly, but the scientist <laughs> chuckles as if it felt good to be out of control for a moment. And Saru concedes that it did. Oh, don't play his game, Saru. Oh, please don't, <sighs> Saru. While Tarka was aware that Saru did not particularly like him, he admitted he loved himself too much <laughs> to allow himself to be blown up, and by extension, the ship would be fine as well. I'm not betting on that. Yeah, you guys can blow yourselves up after I'm done with you. Yes. Stamets also points out that they were making headway into discovering what lay behind the DMA for the first time since they encountered it. Reluctantly, Saru gives in and allows the additional power, but only if Reno provides a cutoff switch when he deems necessary. Good thing. Yeah. In the prison, with 30 minutes left before they were blocked out, Burnham comes across something in Starfleet General Orders and Regulations, which allows a Starfleet captain to provide asylum in extreme circumstances which would bring the prisoners under Federation law, which would allow their cases to be reviewed and their sentences would likely be commuted. Jeez, couldn't she have just contacted Zora and have her? Yes, looked at her. <laughs> looked at up Here she is tapping no, away. No, she couldn't, thing. because once they are in, got inside, oh, right. nothing worked. To, Still, to she, she should have a mini Zora on her. Yes. She pulls stuff up out of nowhere. Okay. Felix asked why the Federation would grant asylum. Jesus, Felix. <laughs> Burnham remembers how the magistrate called them examples and that their sentencing was political theater rather than true justice. If they also believed that to be true and they wanted their cases reviewed, she wanted them to say so. One by one, they do so. As they get moving, Felix moves back into a small cell, saying there was something he could not leave behind. In a low voice, he tells Burnham that unlike the others, he does belong there because he had taken a life. And something else. Under the floor of his cell, he pulls out a small object. A Ligori orb, a record of an Achille family's heritage. Felix had kept it hidden from the guards for 30 years, promising himself that he would return it to the family he had taken it from. He had is, that like the, is that like the watch that uh, Christopher Walken's character hid all those times when he was held in prisoner? Yes. <laughs> but we all know where he hid it. Yeah. <laughs> He had devoted his life to doing penance for his crime and considered helping the others to escape as part of that. 
While he knew Burnham would run into difficulties in offering them asylum, he knew that the right choice was never the easy one. As they walked towards the door, an alarm sounds and the door suddenly slams shut, a force field coming up to block it. Luda realizes her biometric signature triggered the prison's automated system. So prisoners and their rescuers are now trapped. Way to go, Luda. Way to go, Luda. That's all on you. By the way, uh, the actor who plays Felix, his name is uh, Mike Michael Gray Eyes. He's terrific. Such gra- yes. such gravitas. Yes. So meaning. Amazing. So now the scan show the door is covered by a layer of nanomaterial that cannot be shot through. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> when Burton asks for ideas, Booker suggests reactivating the beetle mines to blow open the door. What Steve is thinking. Burnham tells the others to take cover as she was bringing the Beatles. Bring it on the Beatles, man. Yes. Right to them. Booker jokes that he would have thought she considered the idea too crazy. Burnham admits she does, but she doesn't have a better one. Yikes. That sounds like they Yeah, that's honest. Something that would come up in the Animal House, too. Let's just do it. Outside, the Beatles swarm the door and blow it open. Burnham is poor Beatles. Burnham is able to deactivate the system again just before they began launching their saw blades, and the group makes their way outside back on Discovery. Saru asks for an update from Reese, who reports that the evacuation was nearly complete, with only two groups remaining, and Burnham and Booker's comms were still dark. So, plot point D, that we never get to see uh, Reese in his heroic moment. Yes. Cut out completely. Saru orders them to complete the mission, duh, and then proceed to the prison to assist them, and then turns to Stamus and Tarka, telling them to finish the experiment as needed on the bridge. Why? Nielsen's got it. Yeah. <laughs> I could just say they're all up there partying and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Reno has diverted the power, but it warns that the more power the model DMA gets, the more it would be needed for the containment field and also provided Saru with a kill switch. Tarka allows Stamets to begin the experiment. As he increases the power to the device, the containment field weakens and Saru orders Reno to divert power to the field, which stalls the reaction. Stamets insists he can control it. I'm, did you wonder how Stamets suddenly got into this too? Oh, yeah. He's like all in. Yep. Saru reluctantly allows the experiment to continue while asking Zora for real-time feedback. There she is. To the containment field's integrity. As the model DMA begins to react, both scientists excitedly observe geekily that the Tarkus theory was right. The model working exactly like the real DMA was accreting dark matter and also creating a subspace rupture. Zora warns of the containment field's failure, counting down to every 5% of the power drop. It was getting damn close. Yes, it was. <laughs> As it reaches 5% before failure, Saru pulls the kill switch, much to Tarka's consternation, and curtly tells him that the experiment is over before leaving the bridge. Good grief. You're done. 5% really, Saru? Yeah. Burnham and Booker lead the prisoners outside the pattern interrupter, which allows Burnham to contact Discovery. Reese reports that they have been trying to reach her, and that the evacuation was complete. Done on our end. Yep. Burnham orders five to be transported, with more coming. As the others are beamed away, Felix tells them he wanted to make sure the others got out, but he's choosing to stay. Uh, forehead slap. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Felix, you're killing me. Burnham reminds Felix that there were only six minutes left before the interference blocked their transporters, but Felix tells her he resolved to die there years ago and will <laughs> remain until either his jailers return or the anomaly hits. Another anomaly reference. Yes. And you know what, Steve? By this time, I was getting as jittery as that guy on uh, the book of Boba Fett who was holding the twins' litter. Yes. Standing right in the front, like shaking that glove. <laughs> exactly. Come on, man. <laughs> Booker calls this insane, but Felix considers it part of his penance. Wow. 
Bucker is convinced that he is not thinking clearly. He's an expert on that, I would say. Yeah. Felix concedes that they could force him to leave with them, but ask if it was truly their choice to make. He committed his crime while on the colony and so chooses to stay, whether he would remain there for years or only a few more moments. Booker adamantly tries to convince Burnham to take him along, motivated perhaps by his own survivor's guilt, but Burnham chooses to respect Felix's wishes, removing her communicator from her vest so that she could tell him where the anomaly was heading. I think that the whole scene is a microcosm of what's coming later. In the season? Yes, I think so, too. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of that. Who do we save and who do we not? Right. In return, Felix gives her the Ligori orb. He had kept it safe for 30 years and now asks Burnham to do the same and expresses his gratitude for her. I have to save this for 30 years? No. No. Never mind. Yeah. (laughs) Booker remains convinced it was wrong, but Burnham orders only two to be transported. As they materialize on the bridge, Booker exchanges a look with her and quietly leaves for the turbo lift. You know what that nook said? Yeah. No nookie tonight. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You may be sleeping on the couch, Burnham. Yeah, no kidding. Burnham congratulates the crew on the work they've done as they've saved over a thousand lives. Nielsen reports that the colony will be in the DMA's impact zone. Okay. Burnham orders the ship to remain in comms range and then opens a channel to Felix, who now knows the anomaly would impact. So, if he was like the Felix that I knew and loved, he would open his bag of tricks. Right, absolutely. By the way, out. Boomer reference, sorry. Yeah. He offers to tell her about his crime, something he had never told anyone before, and yet also didn't want to carry the burden beyond his life. Very spiritual. Yes. Burnham orders Christopher to raise the privacy barrier, but Felix tells her not to, that he wants all who were present to hear. I was gutsy. Yeah, I'll say. He explains that 30 years ago, he had nothing until a stranger offered him food and shelter. The man went to sleep. Felix proceeded to rob him, waking his host. Oops. There was a struggle and the man died with his daughter asleep in the next room. How the hell did that happen? Yeah, they had their own privacy barrier. <laughs> yeah. Felix did not realize until later that among the things he had taken was the family's Ligori orb. Not only did he take the girl's future, he had taken her past as well. He has thought about the girl every day, how the event must have changed her. When Burnham asked if he knew her name, Felix replies that the family was called Doxia. Then the comms go to static as the leading edge of the DMA pushes the colony asteroid into the sun. Oh, is that what their excuse I was? Yes, that's okay. Man. What, really? That, yeah. Uh, uh, never before, but now suddenly this happens. I mean, yeah, we're in an asteroid belt. Yeah. And the accretion, <laughs> dark matter accretion disk uh, is going to... To push that asteroid into a nearby sun. Well, yeah. well, I guess that sun was pretty near. Yeah, it must have been. Good thing that usually just explodes across a thousand light years, but here it's pushing something like a shopping cart. Right. <laughs> into the sun. Which, there's no way it could be that close because you wouldn't have an asteroid belt. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> they, they love to try to get the scientists right as possible. 
but I think they blew it on this one. Uh, I think they push a little too hard sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Watching for a moment, Burnham then quietly orders Black Alert and to jump away before the wave hits the sun. As the ship retreats to safety, the Achille magistrate storms onto the bridge, demanding that the prisoners brought up from the colony be put in the brig. Oh, so that's what the doors are for. So some jerk and just walk on the bridge. <laughs> Burnham bluntly rebuffs him, reminding him that he no longer had any authority to make such demands as his colony no longer existed. I would, or- I would argue that in court, but whatever. Yeah. The prisoners were now under Federation protection and thus subject to Federation law as he was the magistrate himself. She points out that wherever he and his people were resettled, they would be refugees seeking shelter and care, and adds the hope that whatever society took them in proved to be more just than the one the magistrate had a hand in creating before suddenly telling him to leave the bridge as she had a ship to command. Oof, that was a burn, Steve. Yes, it was. I don't, I don't know it was the worst burn. The asteroids going into this being pushed into that sun or that one right there. Hoo-hoo. In their quarters, Stamets and Culber review their days. For Culber, the refugees are settled down and that their resettlement would begin the following day. For Stamets, he believes they learned a lot about the DMA, though not as much as they could have, and concedes that Tarka is actually a genius but also frightens him somewhat due to his single-mindedness, a trait that sounds familiar to him, you think? Uh-huh. Sounds a little like uh, Moriarty, too. Yes, <laughs> very much. When asked how he was feeling, Culber says he was fine, but Stamus notes that that was an avoiding fine as opposed to a real fine because he looked down when he said it. Okay. <laughs> Culber tells him about his meeting with Kovich, about how he believed Culber was wearing himself out and needed a break. Stamets believes that he must have fallen in love with Culber because they had the same pathology, the same obsession with their work. Yes. Yeah, okay. Culber <laughs> jokes, this makes Stamets either a narcissist or a glutton for punishment. Right. <laughs> and Stamets concedes, no, a little from column A, a little from column B. Leaving <laughs> Culber to observe how they had jumped nearly a thousand years into the future, solve the burn, but can't figure their own shit out. They can say that every episode. <laughs> yes. In the turbo lift, Zora confirms to Burnham that the woman she is looking for is on deck four near airlock two. Then, to Burnham's surprise, offers condolences as her analysis of Burnham's voice indicates sorrow. Yeah, it's an uh-oh moment. Uh-oh. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, could this DMA be another version of Zora? Why is she use- also, why is Burnham using the turbo left? <laughs> from the future that has come back to the past? Wow. Burnham admits it's been a tough day, to which Zora observes the difficulty of balancing duty and compassion. I know what it is. It's a turbo lift from the future that's yeah. trying to get to the <laughs> <laughs> How does this thing work, anyway? Yes. Burnham was unaware Zora had the operational parameters to make such an observation. Zora explains that understanding and experience of emotion naturally led to empathy for others. This surprises Burnham further, leading her to ask if she had emotions. Zora admits it was a recent development before the lift arrives at its destination. <laughs> Burnham should have run out of the, the elevator there and go, Everybody run! Yes. Get off the ship! 
<laughs> this might not be good. Oh, gosh. Barnum approaches Petri Doxia, the daughter of the man Felix killed and also visibly pregnant. <laughs> she introduces herself and holds out the Ligori orb. Petri is shocked, having thought it was lost years before and wonders how Burnham found it. Oh, you know, stuff is just kicking around. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham replies she was helping someone keep a promise. Petri activates the orb, showing a literal family tree and points out her father. Achilles mm. were meant to add to the tree when they came of age, but Petri had never had the chance until now. Whew. Burnham expresses the hope that it would continue to grow for many generations to come. In the crew lounge, <laughs> Parker takes a seat next to Booker. This is not going to end well. Remarking on how he could smell synthesol from across the room before offering a flask of Rhysian whiskey and introducing himself. Do you suppose he's uh, sorry, Steve? Do you suppose he sees Booker as the key to whatever machinations he has? If 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 he's the culprit, I have a feeling he does. Hmm. I think he's. You know, he's got stamets around his finger now. Yeah, yeah, so I much for stamets. Something right. Now yep. he's going to work on Booker because Booker's got that survivor guilt and wants to get back at whoever did this. This is a, he's a grifter. Yes, absolutely. Tark had seen the colony pushed into the sun and remarks on how it was good that everyone got out. Almost, Booker replies, thinking hmm. of Felix as he takes a drink of the whiskey. Tarker agrees that almost had been his day, too, that he had come close to discovering something <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, sucking the discovery into a wormhole. <laughs> Five percent away, protection away. From, yeah. Come on, Saro, hit the switch. Booker asks point blank if he knows what was behind the DMA, remarking that one only got as close as Tarka did if he had some idea what's over the cliff. Uh-huh. Tarka admits he doesn't know who yet, but knew it was not the Metrons, the Nassine, or the Iconians before he arrived. Oh, yeah? If that was the case, Booker asked why the experiment that put Discovery at risk. At first, Turka tries to wave it off by saying that science has many purposes, but Booker isn't buying it. Turka finally explains that he had constructed the miniature DMA controller on a scale of 3.22 times 10 to the negative 17th and yet Discovery couldn't provide enough power to stabilize it, leading him to realize that the actual DMA had an energy source equivalent to a hypergiant star providing unfathomable power. So he either theorized that or he actually knows it. Right. Hmm. And, yeah. <laughs> I go, okay, well, let's see. The protostar... Ship on Prodigy also has a star as part of its engine. Uh oh. So uh, does that mean? Well, okay. Just theorizing again. If he is the culprit behind all this, is yeah. he going to get get them? I don't know. <sighs> close to a, a hypergiant star, so he can use pull the power from it. I don't know. I have worked out the science. I have worked out the science yet, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It'll be tough to figure that one out, but still. <sighs> We've seen Starfleet harness the power of a star here just recently, so... Hmm. Hmm. He speculates that perhaps the DMA's creators were gods, but Booker bluntly tells him that whoever they were, they weren't gods, nor were they immortal. 
He should have slammed. Tarka should have slammed his hand on the bars. Like, I am too. I'm a. Go- oh, oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Tarka comments on Booker's anger and having no place to put it. Yep. Just turn this on me, guys. See, Booker replies that Tarka didn't know him, and Tarka agrees, but he did know anger. A wonderfully productive emotion, as he puts it, while rubbing a, a large scar on the back of his neck. Nice to meet you, Mister Booker. He says as he stands and leaves. Boy, better Booker better hold his cards close to the best there, because this guy's worked yeah, every angle. Believe it. Well, so Steve, yeah, uh, Easter eggs. We going to do some Easter eggs? Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> or any more of the Tarka talk? <laughs> we could do Tarka talk for yeah. another hour or two, probably. Why, why would he rub that? I mean, it's something he probably didn't realize. He had his own tell. Right there when he's yeah. discussing anger oh, and he's yeah. whatever he's angry at. And so he went right to his, his scar right there. Yep. Experimented on or whatever. And Booker sees him. So at least somebody on that ship smells a rat. I would hope so. All right. On to Easter eggs. Right away in the episode hits us with a few starship names that sound familiar. The first is the USS Janeway, an obvious reference to Captain Janeway or her great, 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 great granddaughter who's also a hero. Yes. <laughs> Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager and more recently Star Trek Prodigy. Interestingly, however, the USS Janeway doesn't appear to be on the souped up 32nd century Intrepid class ships. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, it looks like one of the new Constitution class ships was kind of like the USS Armstrong, which was referenced in episode four. Interestingly, although the Voyager J is the 32nd century Intrepid class, when this style of ship was incorporated into the Star Trek Online variant class, ship was called Janeway class. Yeah, explain that. Yeah. <laughs> the other ship, which was almost certainly from Navarre, was called the Tapau. Because they like people from hundreds of years ago, too. Yes. Well, we are, we are, call our own ships in the Navy, the George Washington and oh, <laughs> Abraham. And this references the character Tapau, first introduced in the original episode, Amok Time. That's a good one. And later appear in the Enterprise three-part, which began with The Forge. In the Next Generation episode, Unification 1, Geordi and Riker are also trying to analyze the wreckage of a Vulcan ship called the Tapau, proving this is one Easter egg Star Trek loves, naming Vulcan ships after the lady who officiated Spock's wedding. And that was a good one, too. Yes. (laughs) If someone asks you if you are a space god, you say, yes! (laughs) That's true in every episode. Oh, yes. In trying to figure out the various candidates as to who could have constructed a DMA, Animal Van throws out some very deeply cut to aliens who might have had their super advanced tech to cook up this artificially constructed space wave of doom. Although DMA looks a lot like the V'ger from the motion picture, everyone, uh, nobody mentions V'ger, and V'ger continues not to have the love it needs. There was also that one, uh, what was it, Star Trek 4 or 5 that was the voyage home, yeah. where that big long tube uh, was calling out to the whales. Yeah. Nobody mentions that anymore either. No. But Vance does mention the following four groups. Metrons. Those were the godlike beings who forced Kirk to fight the Gorn on Cetus 3 in the original series episode, Arena. Classic. Athene. And this is a tricky one. This is the formal name of the caretaker species from Voyager. Does Disco love referencing Voyager or what? <laughs> they do. Yes. The Iconian Empire. This is the one is a real deep cut. That it comes actual visual canon. We're not even really seeing the Iconian Empire. They originated in the Next Generation episode, Contagion. And in terms of on-screen canon, they are technically extinct. The big thing they're known for was their gateways, which can instantly transport people across space. 
not to be confused with the Tikan Empire, another superpower extinct empire from the last outpost. Jeez, these last, uh, these super powerful people managed to find a way to become extinct. Yes. How's that possible? Hmm. <laughs> and the last uh, one is the Q continuum. Ben says they have been in contact with the Q in 600 years. By by this, we have to assume the reported contact. The events of Picard take place over 700 years prior to Discovery 3 and 4, so that checks out. But does this mean that the Q have ignored the mere models in the galaxy for six centuries? Why? Hey, yeah. maybe we'll <laughs> really find out. Really question. Maybe we'll find out in Picard. Yeah, it's possible. Possible. Something's going to happen. Uh, we're told that hotshot scientist Ruan Tarka is working with the Aurelio on research about the DMA. Aurelio is a human scientist formerly working for the Emerald Chain, introduced in Discovery Season 3. Though he doesn't quite appear in the episode, he is played by longtime Discovery star Kenneth Mitchell. Notably, this episode, one of the first times we don't see uh, Owo, I'm not going to say her whole name because I always stumble over it, and Detmer in their usual positions in the off chair at the helm. Yeah, that was weird. Yes, it was. Very unusual. Very unusual. Huh? Yeah, I'm like, who's that guy? Yeah. I said there's two new characters up front when those speaking parts. <laughs> this isn't an Easter egg, exactly, but it does mean that the crew of Discovery seems to have finally be on some kind of sensible ship rotation. Hmm. Or they are in their version of 10 Forward. Yes. <laughs> Although Tignataro's Jet Reno has appeared in a semi-regular uh, since the start of Discovery Season 2. The opening credits for this episode seem to give her a promotion to series regular. Cool! Well, let's hope she's feeling better in real life. Yes. Stamets mentioned he's giving uh, notes to Ruan Tarka about not harming Jacep. This references the alien species, the Jacep, who live inside the Messineo Network. The Jacep were first revealed in Discovery Season 2, and from much of that season took the form of May Ahern. It's someone that Tilly had known as a child. Yeah, that was weird. Yes, it was. <laughs> the promise, premise of this episode of Discovery presents a somewhat classic Star Trek ethical dilemma. Boy, the, the original series was always had an ethical dilemma. Although the government on this colony doesn't fall under the prime directive, the people themselves are not Federation citizens. But in all of Star Trek canon, the idea that a planet can be contacted but not messed with is murky, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it almost always has to do with the planet being non-Federation world. <laughs> the Kirk was famous for getting a. It should be called the, the Kirk Get Around or Work Around. Yes. <laughs> okay. And Deep Space Nine, Cisco often had to take a step back from internal affairs on Bajor, even though he didn't want to. The next generation, Picard couldn't exactly influence the political affairs of the Klingon Empire, even though he totally did. Yep. But on the other hand, when Worf murdered Duras, Picard was in a legal gray area, but Federation law it was illegal. But under Klingon law, not at all. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Huh? I understand we're friends, so I'll let you get away with it. Yep. Book is a negative reaction to Burnham granting autonomy that results in a suicide isn't an intentional history, but it does go, Easter egg, I should say, it does go to echo Lowox and Troy's reaction to ritualistic suicide in the Next Generation episode, Half a Life. Interestingly, the planet, Kalon 2, is also a non-Federation planet. Boy, they're all popping up all over the place, yes, Dave. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> But non-Federation uh, non planets are involved. Starfleet tends to be a kind of prime directory, even though, even if the exact rule doesn't apply. Uh, uh, super gray area. It's too bad they don't have a police yes. or a section actually enforcing that. Yeah. Don't, don't they have a shift log or, uh, you know, reports that they actually get back to somebody like Vance or whoever's yeah, working? You would it's think. Like, this is probably a stretch, but the idea of symbolic prisoners serving out entirely unfair sentences vaguely uh, echoes an episode of the 1978 Battlestar Galactic called The Long Patrol. 
In it, Starbuck cra uh, crash lands on a planet populated by prisoners who are all in jail for crimes committed by their ancestors. Yow. <laughs> As such, they have names like Bootlegger 137. Good grief. It also leads to a class question, what kind of crime is Starbucking? Okay, BSG digression is over. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the prisoners in the examples mentioned that their crime was that they could counted cards at a Tongo club. Tongo is a game that first appeared in T Space Nine and is seemingly a Ferengi game. Like many sci-fi card games, see Sabak and Star Wars. The rules of Tongo are a little odd. It is a card game, but there's also a spinning wheel element to it. Mm -hmm. So so that's so, so you can cheat. Yes, <laughs> oh, Ferengi can cheat. Yes, exactly. And DSNA Dax was the Tongo shark. In a show-stopping therapy session, David Cronenberg, Dr. Kovich, reminds Dr. Culber and the audience of somewhat unresolved plot point. You died, Kovich says to Culber, and then mentions that he <laughs> What a great bedside manner, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> and he mentioned that his official plot was fairly generic in terms of how Culber recovered from the experience emotionally. The reference in the, this reference to the events of Saints of Imperfection in Season 2 as well, as well as If Memory Served. But, more broadly, this addresses an interesting trope in Star Trek, which Lord uh, Dex interestingly tackled this year also. Very often in Trek canon, major characters come back from the dead. That was so funny in Lord Dex. <laughs> so funny. In Lord Dex Season 2, this was turned into an inside joke, insofar as junior officers would often be entirely in the dark as to why a dead character did character return to life in active duty immediately. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Well, Colbert and Kovic's conversation this episode does something similar. Address a very common Star Trek trope, the new level of scrutiny. This time, though, what Kovic says is pretty smart. If someone did die and came back to life, they would might develop a moderate complex right away. Or they could be so selfish that they didn't care. Which, oddly enough, explains quite a bit of Star Trek narratives from a physiological point of view. Or a psychological one. Yep. It's a lot to unpack, but Kovic's 10 minutes are up. <laughs> <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> when Bird of a book disable the force seals surrounding the prison, their phasers emit solid beam. This is a small thing, but it, this rarely happens in Discovery. Although solid beam from phasers are a staple of franchise before the 21st century, the post-Abrams era has seen the phasers a little more pew-pew bolts. I like pew-pew bolts. Yep. In the season two finale of Discovery, Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2, we did see the Enterprise fire solid blue phaser beams, as, as they often did in the original series. In Disco Season 3, we saw Burnham's new phaser fire a solid blue beam when she was using it to cauterize a wound in a leg. Eh, I guess it's the settings. You know, you should be able to talk to your phaser. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and here again, Burnham and Book phasers are emitting solid beams, kind of like the old school TNG effect. It's a small thing, but for a long time, tricky. It's pretty cool. I don't know what setting I'd have mine put on Steve. I mean, beyond stun. Right. Or do I want pew pew or do I want a solid beam? Yeah. <laughs> the biggest news in this episode is easily introduced with Ruan Tarka, which is Sean Doyle. While we have no idea what the deal is with that thing book spotted on his neck, we do know that the tattoo on his head means that he's from the planet Risa. In the examples, he jokes dismissively about being from the pleasure planet. I know. Can you imagine? Yeah. No. He's the only one in interested in engineering. No, no, no. Interesting in you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it was first intro introduced in the Next Generation episode, Captain's Holiday, and has subsequently been referenced throughout the franchise. Interestingly, <laughs> like, you know, synonymously with Riker, interestingly, there's never been a major car uh, Star Trek character from Rice before. As Tarka implies, it's the place people visit, but we haven't really heard of anyone leaving there. Yeah. 
It seems unlikely that Discovery is going to take a holiday to Risa anytime soon. Boy, but if Tarka sticks around this season, we could see the planet again. Can you imagine if that anomaly destroyed Risa? Ouch. Yes. <laughs> For him, Tarka, Risa isn't a vacation, it's a home. All right. All right. I'm still not 100% sure that he actually is from Riser. That could be a ruse as well. Why would he ruse that? I mean, no, it, it doesn't make sense that he would, but I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. Usually, yeah, really. I believe anything that comes out of his mouth. Interesting character. Yep. The tattoo, I know, it kind of reminded me, uh, reminded me of the Matrix where he get plugged in in the back. Yes. What if he was a, a slave or. At that time, maybe he was a genius, but he had to work like at a bar or something, Risa, wasting his talents, and now he's going to take it out on the galaxy. That's possible, I guess. I don't know. Well, we do have some feedback. As usual, our friend Fred from the Netherlands has provided his thoughts on the episode. Let's hear what he thinks about it. Hello, Steve and Dave, and all listeners to the Fangirl Zone. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback. For Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 5. First off, in his discussion with Dr. Kolber, I think David Cronenberg did a much better job this time as Kovic as last episode. I was quite critical about his performance, but now it was quite okay. I think the prisoner liberation was quite Star Trek-y in the sense of the discussion about autonomy. And in this case, Book had quite some problems with leaving Felix behind. And of course, although she had some difficulties with it, uh, Burnham did the right thing. She actually should imagine that it would be the other way around. That just Burnham took him. Well, we would all be devastated because it would be so un-Star Trek-y. If you look at it in that way, it was actually quite predictable. The interaction between Ruan, Tarka and Stamets was also a little predictable, but it was, I think, great fun, especially because also Commander Jet Reno was there. Really nice. And suddenly I thought, why do I know this Tarka? The actor is Sean Doyle, and he actually played Secretary Aaron Wright for 27 episodes in The Expanse, a series you are podcasting about. As well, of course, Steve, together with Sean, and is currently in his sixth season, and probably final season. I don't know if this actor always plays a kind of arrogant roles, but in the case of Aaron Wright and here Tarka, there is some similarity there. Okay, I really have to stop here, otherwise it gets too long, and the church bells start to ring. Anyhow, that's on Sunday morning, of course. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Get more sophisticated there, Fred. Yes, he is. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. Oh, I can't wait to hear Fred's uh, feedback in upcoming episodes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know I've seen that actor in quite a few things, too. Yes, and Aaron Wright, definitely. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely some similarities between those two characters, so... Yeah, maybe uh, he has been typecast just a little bit there. Maybe. He does it well. Yeah, good catch there, Fred. I'm a little surprised he didn't bring up the end with how Book and Burnham kind of uh, had their differences on what to do with... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, with I think... 
Yeah, Fred can reach his limit too on that kind of stuff. I think we know how he feels. Right, yes. About those things like Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> a little too predictable. Yep. Well, as always, Fred, we love hearing from you and looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the next episode. We would love to hear your thoughts on each and every episode this season. Our deadline for feedback is 10 p.m. Eastern every Friday during the season. You can send your feedback, be it audio or email, to contact us at bangirlzone.com. And you can include your own sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> you can go to www.fangirlzone.com and click on the contact link where you'll find several ways to contact us. This is email or through social media on Twitter. He's at Sully or Steve, and I'm at the Real ID Dave. Please review and rate us on iTunes and any other platforms you listen to us on. As good ratings and reviews help other fans of the show find us, as there are a lot of Star Trek Discovery podcasts out there. Is there? Yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your friends, and we do hope you like our podcast, and don't forget to check out the other great Fangirl Zone podcasts. The sixth episode is on December 23rd, and is titled Stormy Weather. So until then, remember, this is Chief Engineer Steve. I can just picture Tilly's face when she finds out that we got sucked into a wormhole <laughs> three days after she left. Ha ha ha. And this is Richard Dave. And since this is a family show, I can't show you my personal facer. <laughs> but sometimes it goes pew pew pew, and other times it's a solid beam. <laughs> <laughs>